1: Welcome to the story behind the song, the podcast where we interview the most iconic artists behind the most iconic songs of the past few decades. I'm your host, Peter Chadi, and I'll go deep with your favorite musicians to learn about their fascinating creative journeys into how their most popular and lasting songs came to be. We'll also discuss one of the artist's favorite deep cuts from their own catalog. And in the process, these icons will reveal their own personal experiences through the years, and their candid reflections about their triumphs and challenges. Let me introduce today, and it's wonderful to have Colin Hay, who's a singer, songwriter, musician, actor, we'll talk about that a little bit too, yes. of the iconic band Men at Work, of course. he let, Colin led the band through the early 80s in three studio albums, and since then has had a very successful solo career with multiple albums, and a new album upcoming that we'll talk about. And I also want to mention that his songs have been featured in multiple soundtracks, of course, including one of my favorites, the indie soundtrack, Garden State, where his solo song, I Just Don't Think I'll Ever Get Over You was featured, which is a beautiful song. And I was just watching a clip earlier today of Colin on The Larry Sanders Show with Gary Shandling, which was one of my favorites that you can find on HBO Max. So all kinds of things, Colin. Um, and today we're going to talk about the song down under, of course, from men at works, 1981 breakthrough album, business as usual. And then Colin identified his favorite song being waiting for my real life to begin, which was first released on his 1994 solo album Topanga and then later released in a very different form. In an acoustic version in his 2001 album, Going Somewhere. So enough of the introductions. Colin, no. wel- <laughs> welcome Thank to you. the story behind nice the song. To, yeah, nice to be with you. Yeah, Absolutely. great to have you. Where are you calling in or where are you joining me from today?
2: I live in Topanga, California. Okay. I've been here for about uh, 30 years. Actually, 30 years last, um, last month. I lived in the same place.
1: Ah, and yeah,
2: uh, I think uh, May '91. Um, I came here with the old band in the early '80s, but I lived in Melbourne and Australia up until up until I I really came here in '89 uh, to do a because I had a record deal, and uh, and then I went back to Melbourne, and then I came realized that I really wanted to be here, so I came back here, and I've been here ever since.
1: What was it ultimately that led you from? Leaving Australia to come to Los Angeles
2: uh, there were m- uh, multiple reasons why I came here um, um, one reason was that I had a, as I say I had a record deal with MCA records which uh, I was on Columbia, which was a deal out of new york and and um, the then head of um, Columbia got the sack and he went to he moved to um, uh, MCA Records in Los Angeles and offered me a deal. It was a very short-lived deal. Only I was supposed to do two albums, but only did one and then they dropped me. Um, but that's why I came here uh, initially. That was one reason I came here was because I had a record deal which was based in Los Angeles. Another reason was I was getting divorced. Uh, and so that was another reason. And then another reason was that I was having trouble with a drink and all my friends were... High-functioning drug addicts and alcoholics—you <laughs> know—they're very successful people, but they just—they yeah. got, they got um, really out there all the time, and, and I, I couldn't—I just couldn't uh, couldn't do it anymore, and so I just ran away. I ran away mm. from Melbourne. It's a difficult place to leave because it's a beautiful place to live, and um, it's one of the great cities of the world. Um, but when I came to Los Angeles. Um, which is perhaps an odd thing to to find but i found it a very uh strangely a very spiritual place uh because nobody really cares about you you know you've got about 30 seconds to state your piece <laughs> and then people just move on or they want to switch change the channel
1: yeah but at the,
2: but at the same time uh they accept you they accept you for what you're doing and for who you are and so i found that very liberating in a way yeah and and also i was i was uh, freshly sober, so I didn't have my past uh, around my neck, and so I could I could start here with a with a with a clean slate. So I I always associate Los Angeles with um, with starting again and 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 it being kind of uh, you know more full of light.
1: Yeah, well, and Topanga is a very spiritual place, part of Los Angeles. Despite, yeah, the, even, despite the but, despite the fires that sometimes the fires
2: but even driving down the 101 sometimes I can get I can have moments of euphoria
1: oh absolutely it's <laughs> it's a it's a beautiful drive it's a wonderful drive um, Colin I just r- really quickly uh, I, I would like to understand because I think it's always interesting for people out there to you know how did how did someone from their youth ultimately become a musician what dr- was there always an interest in music, interest in music? do you At what point did you go that way? Was it accidental? Just take me through that a little bit as a you know, as a young lad who had moved from Scotland to Australia, and you know what led you to ultimately your first music work?
2: Well, it's in my DNA uh, for an, for a couple of reasons. I think that a lot of people from Scotland uh, are musical. Um, and it comes from there's a tradition of singing. Um, to get into a party, you know, on the weekend, if you're going to go to a party, because um, that's what you did. And to get into a party, you had to be able to sing. You had to have a party piece. And so that goes way back. That's kind of inbuilt in a way. But but my my mother and father were both musical. My father was on the stage when he was young. He was a singer and a dancer, and um, and he had a lot of talent. It, it was unfulfilled in a way. He didn't follow it. Um, I mean, he was he was a child prodigy, they say. He was on very successful when he was 12, 13 years old on the stage in Glasgow in the 1930s. Uh, but then uh, the war came. He became a piano tuner, so he, he was in a related field. But uh, from the years of 1958 to, until 1967, uh, we had a music shop in Scotland, a record store, so, uh, that was an amazing time to be behind the behind the counter, you know, even when I was young i would I would help my mother and father on a Saturday serve in the shop from when I was maybe eight or nine years old. Mm. And so, I was surrounded by music and amazing music at that time, an astonishing you know um decade of of music from that time fifty eight to sixty seven I mean my God, that was a golden period, you know, so. Every Monday, you'd get singles that would come in, whether it was "You Really Got Me" by the Kinks, or "I Feel Fine," or you know, "Green Onions," or, or or Jim Reeves, or Elvis, or or Bob Dylan. It was just coming at you all the time. And so, from the age of about thirteen, I i I really became. I think that it was um, "She Loves You" um, really was the song where I just thought. Um, I went to a I went to this. I was still in Scotland and I went to this dance and She Loves You was playing and and it was just it was so magical and I just thought my this is a a world that I want to belong to and uh and also um you know I was sitting having a Coca-Cola at the Eglinton Cafe when I was 13 and I heard um good vibrations and I thought well I, I want to go where that sound comes from because that's I don't I don't really understand that it just sounded otherworldly otherworldly to me so um i took i started to take guitar lessons and and just basically became obsessed with the beatles and um i, I took guitar lessons from a, a girl who lived in a, a town near me and she taught me how to play House of the Rising Sun. And if you know if you've if you've if you've played House of the Rising Sun, you know that when you play that song, if there's an F chord in it where you have to bar two strings. Mm-hmm. So once you get past that, you're off and running.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. I have that challenge as I try to play those things back there. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh and and so you started at about you said about the age of thirteen, fourteen, picking up the guitar. Yeah okay I
2: played piano before that but but regret regrettably I, I gave it up uh, like a like a damn fool <laughs> um, my father and mother said get, got me good piano lessons and and I I was okay at it I was I was pretty good actually I, but I had a good memory so I would I would sight read to the point where I could remember the the, the 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 tunes and then I would just do them from memory and and I got caught out doing that but but I just I think I was probably just lazy. I wanted to go and play football in the street or up in the park with my friends, and it's my big regret. Actually, I really regret not continuing with the piano.
1: Well, there's still, you know, there, there's still plenty of time, and you've done, you've done all right with guitar. <laughs> well,
2: I, 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 you know, I've, I've got the, um, I've got the book, um, you know, piano for the older beginner, and I'm working through that.
1: Ah, there you go outstanding so when did you when did you write your first song
2: uh, when I was 14 I was in Australia and uh, I'd I used to play at this um, this uh, folk club called Bomoros Folk Club which is the town that I lived in when I first went there I can't remember what the song was I've, I've tried to remember but I can't
1: so you were already pl- you were already playing a uh, a folk club at yeah. that age
2: yeah I was playing from when I, from when I was 14 years old huh and uh, And it was a great uh, breeding ground because they used to have, they used to have um, really great folk artists that would come through and play. So I learned a lot. You know, a guy, one guy had a Martin guitar. I think his name was Peter Martin, actually. (laughs) And uh, but he played fingerstyle. Yeah. And then there was a guy that would come in and name of Danny Spooner. He came in and he had a pump, a little harmonium pump or a little pump organ. You know, and just these great sounds that you probably wouldn't have heard. in, in, um, in other places, so, so that kind of music you know came to me, which was quite, uh, quite strange because it was a you know very leafy kind of middle- class suburb that, that w- which was the last place you'd expect to hear, you know relatively hardcore uh, folk music you know being played at that time.
1: right. Um, so it was it was really great. And so your songwriting began right around that time.: Yeah. do you remember your first song? No, I was just saying I can't remember it. Oh, you can't remember it okay no,
2: I try, I've tried to remember it, but I can't remember what it was but but i wrote I wrote songs a lot, you know from that point on, and uh, I mean maybe some of them were okay. Um, I actually had a played a show in in Melbourne a few years ago, and the drummer of my first band came, and we were talking and he said, y- you know. He said, Do you remember? He said, We used to play your songs. And I said, no, I don't remember that. He said, Oh, yeah, we played a lot of your songs. He said, They were good. I said, I have no memory of what they were called. And, uh, but he said, Yeah, we played because we, we'd played, cov- we, we would play covers as well. But we, you know, he said, No, we used to play quite a few of your songs. And I have had no memory of that at all. Hmm. So, yeah, you just kind of keep, you, you keep writing or banging away at it. And then hopefully eventually, you know, ones start to come through that have a bit of
1: shine to them, you know? And so then ultimately from from those early days and you were playing in clubs, uh, to the point where you met with, I guess, you tell me where the, the genesis of Men at Work was and meeting meeting your partner who helped found the band. And, you know, my understanding was that you started first as a duo together. Yeah. So just take me through well, that a little bit.
2: Well, uh, the um, I was I wasn't I was in a I was in a band in '73 and really great musicians and a guy a drummer uh, the, the the first the first musician who really gave me a lot of confidence was a guy called Bones Elliott Keith Elliott he passed away a year or two ago and uh, he was a great drummer and really fantastic feel drummer and he gave me a lot of confidence because he said, you know, let's put a band together. We'll call it the Colin Hay band. He says, cause you've got, you've got, you've got the songs and, and we can, we can, we'll, you know, we'll do well. So we tried that for a few months and, yeah. and it didn't work that well. We played a couple of shows and, and um, I don't know, it was just wasn't, it wasn't really happening. Um, but he was very, very positive and, and gave me a lot of confidence as a, as a, as a songwriter
1: but let me uh, let other, me ask you a question about that so in that were you singing yeah. th- with that band too so did yeah. you always have confidence in your singing because you started uh, yeah, at from, singing
2: from when I was about 14 okay I I, I I was in a band the first band was called Deep Impression mm-hmm. and our singer got taken away because he'd, <laughs> he'd stolen a PA system from the local <laughs> school <laughs> and the cops came and took him away so we're uh-huh. no singer So I had to sing, and Uh, then I discovered, oh, this is good.
1: Um, One of those wonderful twists of fate.
2: I know. I know. He wasn't a very good criminal because, I mean, the the police thought, well, okay, who needs a PA system? There's only two bands in the town, so they went to visit (laughs) visit us.
1: Uh, That's pretty good. That's pretty good.
2: So anyway, in the back of my mind, I also had, you know, my parents were kind of you know I wanted to please my parents because they, they, they weren't particularly uh, happy about the fact that I was going to, f- you know follow a, a go into a, a life of music. So um, I went to university, you know, just to kind of bide my time to I thought, well, okay, this band's not quite working out. So I'll go back to school and just please them, and then that'll give me time to strategize, which actually worked out quite well because I went to university, so they were happy and um and they were very you know they were kind of very you know v- beautiful people but you know w- worried about the fact that i was going to become some kind of drug addict i think you know
1: as parents always are <laughs> yeah and um
2: and so i went to university i went to university and there i met um russell who was became the band's manager and i'd known i'd met greg through a friend of mine before I went to university. So I knew Greg from when I went to, from when I was a, at school and Greg wasn't even a musician then. He was, he was just about to take up saxophone and flute, you know, then around 72, around 1972. So, and Jerry i met through Kim, my friend Kim as well, the drummer at university. So university was really good because it did give me time to write songs and just to kind of try and figure out how to, how to put this thing together because uh, I wanted to put a band together eventually so I, I went through the university and and um, enjoyed it uh, you know and and you know got a an arts degree which is basically useless you know but <laughs> but, but but I got I, I did that and then I came out the other end and I got this job in, in a musical called Ned Kelly but before that just before I went off to kind of uh, to be in that, I got a job in the chorus of that, I was uh, in this backyard in West Melbourne and um, and I met, the, I saw this young guy playing uh, acoustic, playing an ovation, um, 12-string acoustic guitar and he was playing beautifully and I thought, this is really magic, uh, this, this guy's really got something. So I just listened to him and we, I got talking and we, we started to chat and we, I think we might have played a little bit together, I can't quite remember, but just at that point on, I knew that this was the this was the person that I wanted to to write, maybe not even write songs with necessarily, but I, wa- I knew that I wanted to work with him because he was special. So, so that was Ron, uh, Ron mm-hmm. Striker, and indeed, mm-hmm. and I said, when I come back from this musical, we'll um, let's do something together, let's play music together, and so that's what we did, and uh, and it was exactly as I th- th- hoped and thought it would be we started to work together and write together and play together and indeed uh, this interesting sound came out which was really the you know the 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 germination of of men at, of what became men at work
1: and how did you come up with the name together for the band
2: well um I thought of the name men at work because there were signs, the men at work signs <laughs> everywhere. And, there's, yeah. you know, one guy digging a trench and nine guys watching them, you know? <laughs> and, sure. uh, and it just, it just, it struck me as just something that people see all the time when they're driving yeah. around. So it would be a, it's a, it's, it's in, it's in you, even in your, either in your peripheral vision or in your consciousness, that, that, that road sign. And, um, it was one of a number of names that were in the hat, so to speak. And uh, we had a gig to start playing at the Cricketer's Arms Hotel and the and the owner of the pub called Joe Taylor called us and said, hey, listen, I need to put something on the blackboard. Uh, you need to have a name. And so Ron said, I think we should go with men at work. And so that's <laughs> what we did.
0: Uh, so
2: he put men at work uh, on this blackboard. Yeah. That's how, that's how we first started to play. And strangely enough, uh, when he put men at work on the blackboard, uh, a few guys came in and applied for work. The he, thought he, he thought he was asking for people to go. Uh,
1: expanding the ma- expanding the numbers in the band. <laughs> well, it's it's always interesting. Like, I always love to hear the genesis of the names of bands as well and just kind of the, the beginnings of, of um, you know, their lives and, and how, how it all came to be and there's so much that we could talk about uh, i i want to focus on the two songs that we mentioned yeah. because i know that jumps kind of from there to here but nonetheless let's let's first talk about one of men at works biggest hits and that is the song down under and you know that comes from your debut major label uh, album business as usual and you co-wrote the song correct with ron yes yes and so t- just tell me the story of that, of how it came to be. You know, one of the things as I was looking into things a little bit, I did not know this, that it was originally a B-side, that's what yes. I read, to one of your initial releases that was called Key Punch Operator. But you take me through the whole story of how that came to be and and everything of it. Well, um,
2: Again, uh, Ron used to give me little cassette tapes of ideas that he had because he used to do home recordings on a little porter studio,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and he would give me cassettes to listen to. And one of them had this little hypnotic trance-like um, groove on it, which is which was just. <laughs> and I, and it was really intriguing to me, and and. Uh, And so I listened to it endlessly in the car, just on, it was, you know, it really was like a loop, but, um, and I had a phrase in my head, living in the land down under, I had that for a few weeks, and I just started singing that over the top of it, so it would go, living in the land down under, (laughs) and then I just kept singing that, and I thought, that might be something, and I just sang that all the way home, because I lived uh, just out of the city. And then, and, um, and I got home, and then I just, Slept, you know, went to sleep, and then ne- the next morning I just woke up, and and then the wrote the words and the chords and the whole, the whole thing, uh, came out. Uh, the whole song basically came to be uh, the next morning, but it had been triggered by uh, by Ron's cassette. Um, so that's how it came about.
1: You know, it's it's interesting because I've spoken with several musicians, some several great artists, and so many times I hear. The 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 reality of they have been sleeping and they they wake up to yeah, right. be an inspiration to a, a lyric a, or melody.
2: Yeah, it's a powerful thing. Sleep in that regard, it's it's um, it's a very uh, it's a very it can be a very creative thing uh, if you if you just well i I found that uh, to be the case where you. You wake up in the morning, and the first couple of hours is is you can do a lot with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was one of those. That was one of those those um, those moments. Um, and I mean, I, I went to Australia as an immigrant, so I I always had this idea of uh, the fact that Australia felt very different under my feet. But um, I always wanted to write a song somehow about the country that I was. That I'd uh, moved to, you know, and I'm now called home, um, and so that was the one that I came up with. And um, it's interesting because it keeps it keeps changing, uh, uh, yeah, meaning meaning as time goes on. You know, it, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting song in that regard. You know um,
1: did it Did it just when you when you woke up and you said that you were you know, you, you fleshed it out, you wrote the lyrics. Did it pour out of you at that time, yeah, yeah, essentially, also, in one sitting? Yeah, it was 40 minutes, 40 minutes. Yeah. Amazing.
2: Um, yeah, 40 minutes is, is, and I often say to people, you know, people say, you know, would you recommend songwriting as a profession? And I, th- and I say to them, well, you know, down under, and I think about this a lot. Actually, I think about this most days. Um, so 40 minutes changed my life. I mean, those, that, that, those 40 minutes enabled me to live for the rest of my life. You know, um, if, I, if I'm careful, I mean, that is, uh, that is the case. Yeah. So yes, I would recommend it highly.
1: Because <laughs> you never know. <laughs> exactly, that's right. But uh, write down your ideas when you're inspired like that, because otherwise they can. They have the risk of floating away.
2: I think and, you should I think you should write down your ideas even when you're not inspired.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, so you know because well, so, so, uh, you know, if you wait for inspiration, sometimes nothing happens, you know. It's it's kind of it's I think I think inspiration can be practiced.
1: Mhm. But did you know that when you, when you were inspired like that, you woke up and you wrote it all down within 40 minutes? Did you know immediately that you had something special?
2: Yeah, yeah I think so. I think so, yeah. And, I mean, the interesting line in that song, I mean, I had a lot of fear and trepidation at that time. I mean, I was, uh, you know, a bit of a tree hugger, um, <laughs> hippie, if you like, but I was, I was left of centre in the sense that I never really, I I never I didn't, I didn't associate, I didn't relate with uh, conservative thinking and, 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 and the way things had been in Australia for so long. And it was an interesting time because... Things were changing. There was a lot more social consciousness and people were waking up. Uh, so I thought. <laughs> um, there was a momentous thing that happened in 1975 in Australia where the government, which was a Labour government, which is basically a democratic government, a guy uh, by the name of Gough Whitlam, who was a big I was a big fan of, uh, the government got sacked by the Queen. Um, and so that was a, 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 a monumentally... Weird, strange thing to happen um, because there was a constitutional crisis, and mm-hmm. they didn't know what to do, and so they had to ask <laughs> they had to ask the Queen because the Queen is ostensibly still the Queen of Australia. So she right. told the, she said to the Governor General, "You fi- you figure it out?" And so he sacked the government. So a, a democratically elected government was sacked by the by the um, by the Queen. That's amazing. Uh, so um, it was horrendous. And mm-hmm. people took to the streets and so forth so that was a moment for me which where I realized i i I figured out really which side I was on and I mean I knew that before that but so I always had a lot of um suspicion of you know large corporations and and big money and 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 the government and and so the the second line of the chorus which is um where women glow and men plunder really is what the song is about. Really, it's it's really um, the fact that women tend not to destroy things, uh, but that seems to be in the realm of men. Was really what what that was, and and um, you know, I, I, I what I perceived was that that Australia being an incredibly unique place was being sold down the river by uh, by sh- for short term gains, whether it's. Whether it's destroying old growth forests, or whether it's the desecration of coastal lands, or whether it being coming overdeveloped and much much along the same lines as as a lot of um, the U.S., uh, and I just thought, well, this is becoming like everywhere else, and, mm-hmm. um, and I thought, and the verses were, were really uh, you know poking fun or taking a satirical look at the stereotypical, rather unconscious Australian travelling overseas who is. Kind of blissfully unaware of the fact that you know twenty three million people or something have this huge continent mm-hmm. that they that they've inherited, mm-hmm. um, um, and and we should look after it, you yeah. know. And so, to me, there was a lot of amazing kind of. Uh, I mean, Australia is is a very it's a truly awesome place in the true sense of the word, and. So so, you know. So many people seem to be unconscious to me about actually just where they were and 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 what we had to do to to actually sustain ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. I mean that can be seen in lots of ways. Not that I was not that I'm, I'm blowing my own trumpet to to in, by any means, but back in the '70s and early '80s, when we were, you know, trying to get away from the cities, and and that's what I was tr- trying to do anyway. I was. I always had a love of hills and dales and 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 more um, pastoral life, if you like. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, we could we we could always we sense that that uh, as far as climate change was concerned, that what we were doing was was unsustainable. You know, and mm-hmm. and Australia has always had problems with with. Um, Things like bushfires and stuff like that, but now the the evidence and and the the of of climate change is really apparent there. Whether it's a fire, if a fire comes through, it's a super fire. Yeah. If there's a flood, it's a super flood. If it's a drought, it's a really dry drought for many, many, for much longer. And so it's um, everything is is much more extreme, you know. So, anyway, I think that you know thinking about thinking about the song, it's um, it's ultimately I think a song about celebration. Um, but not really, you know, in a flag-waving way, which a lot of people, you know, took it as. Yeah. Um, but it's really a song ultimately about about celebration and and connection uh, because I know that because when I play it in Bolivia and they have the same, you know, they have the same response to it that they do in, in, in Australia or yeah. play it in, in some far-off land that has no idea what the lyrical content is, but they just know it makes them feel good.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because um, I would imagine very few people who are listening to this would would understand that that song had these kind of political undertones that you were talking about just now uh, about yeah, well, they were more, men plundering and women yeah. glowing and yeah yeah it was
2: just really that that we're gonna have to reap what we'll you know we'll probably at some point have to um, to reap what we sow
1: <laughs> right
2: you know which is really I think what is indeed happening yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's a it's a it's an amazing place it, it really is still I mean um, and and oddly enough the um I say the founding of Australia but you know the 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 um, uh, when white people first went to Australia which was just in the late uh, 1700s um, I think Aboriginals were well, they keep on they keep on uh, um, you know, the, the time keeps on getting changed, but, you know, indigenous people had been living there, they said, for 30,000 years and 40,000, 50,000, 60,000, and now, you know, maybe even more than that, but, you know, uh, maybe 80,000 years um, indigenous people have been living in that, co- on that continent, you know, mm-hmm. so we, you know, we've been there for a minute in, in comparative terms. But, um, uh, you know, it's all tied in with the American Revolution, because when, when America became um, a country, Americans said, okay, to, said to Britain, right off you, go home. Um, this is our country now. And uh, so told the British to go home. And indeed they did. And they said, by the way, um, you know, you can keep your convicts as well. We don't want any more of your convicts because Britain had been sending convicts to America mm-hmm. um, to get, you know, to 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 serve out their term because they didn't have any space in jails. And, and so when they... When they when America said you can't you know don't send your convicts here anymore they had they had nowhere to send them so that's how Australia was actually first when they said oh well, we'll need to send them somewhere so they started sending them to Australia so the founding of Australia by white people is really closely tied in with the American Revolution
1: yeah interesting yeah that's a, that's very interesting um, yeah when, when you Think about all of that and the song itself and how you you immediately felt like you had something, you had captured um, magic in the bottle, essentially. You know, lightning had struck you with inspiration. How did that song then become the B-side to one of your early releases, Key Punch Operator?
2: Well, down under predated Men at Work. Uh, mm-hmm. Ron and I, we used to play it as an acoustic duo, and it was a very, it was more meandering. It was a bit more... Um, uh, it was less focused, everything was there, you know all the the words were there and the chords were there and everything but it was it was more meandering and um, you know less of a pop song if you like yeah and when men at work formed, that kind of continued in a way we were a bit more of a jam band you know we would play live and we would play these songs and explore ideas and we would we would take them places that perhaps um, You know, you're going down a main road with a song and sometimes you think, oh, we'll take the side road. We'll see what's down here. And you explore it for a while. And I think that Down Under, when we first recorded it, first of all, we went into the studio and we didn't really know what we were doing. We went in with a couple of, an engineer and uh, nobody was really particularly experienced. I think Jerry had made a record uh, before, but before that. But in the studio... We didn't really know what we were doing, and so it didn't end up sounding particularly good. Mm-hmm.
1: Is there any place to find that original recording? Oh, I
2: think you can get it there, it's around, you know, um, somewhere. I don't have a copy, maybe I've got a copy somewhere, but you know, my god, I, I, I don't know where to <laughs> start to try and look for it, you
1: know. <laughs> yeah, it could be, be in a number of places, but, it'd be fascinating to listen to, actually.
2: But the thing was really, uh, a turning point for us was we we started to play live and we started to develop the songs and we started to develop a really, really strong live following. And the songs were apparent. I mean, even if the songs were, say, who can it be now when we first used to play, it was six minutes long, you know, and the saxophone hook of the song, it never used to come in until halfway through the song. So, That's okay when you're playing live because nobody cares because people are drinking and they're just trying to you know they're trying to pull women or whatever they're trying to do you know, Um, and uh, and you're playing you're playing these live songs so this record producer came along we we uh, um, uh, an A and R guy from from CBS Records which became Sony but at that time was CBS. Came down to see the band, and he brought this American record producer, a guy called Peter McKeon, to see us. And he immediately got it straight away, and he said, "I want to produce this band, you know." And uh, and so he did, and we got the deal and a deal to make a single, actually, not even an album. But um, he completely understood uh, the songs, or the power of the songs. Not only that, but he understood what 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 he had to do with them.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So we went into a ten day pre-production period and where he just basically whipped the songs into shape, you know, where he said, okay, if a guy at a radio station, he is, who can it be now? He's not going to wait for two minutes before the, before the saxophone hook comes in. You got to put that right, right up the front of the song. And so we thought, oh, great, brilliant. You know? So you hear this, you're dum, dum, ba," you're ba, up, you're, 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 you're,
1: you're right in, already.
2: you're in, right. Yeah. So he did things like that. So he, ba- he basically, you know, made the songs, um, uh, got rid of all the fat on them, and can just kind of okay. Here's the. Here's essentially what this song is. He did that with Down Under. He did it with Who Can It Be now. He did it with Overkill and a number of other songs, and, and that's how we recorded recorded the album. And that's, I think, largely why it was so uh, massively commercially successful.
1: Yeah. No. A very interesting journey for that song. Which, um, and one of the things that you were talking about when you were talking about that song, at how you can take a side road with the song, right? Yeah. You can go obviously multiple ways, multiple paths with the same yeah. song in terms of how you play it, how you record it, which leads, which is a nice little segue in terms of the second song that we're going to be talking about. Because as I said, in the story behind the song, I like hearing the story behind one of the big hits, but also just you as the artist, as the composer, as the writer, as, uh, as a musician, your favorite song or recording, and you had mentioned to me that um, waiting for my real life to begin, and I find it interesting that the side road you took there, and I want to hear it from you, obviously, is that it's released in two different formats on two of your solo albums, so initially, you have one version of it. And then in the 2001 album, uh, you have the acoustic stripped down version. But take me through that song, which I, th- I think you co-wrote, co-wrote with Tom Mooney. Is that right. correct? Yeah. Well, Tom came up with the title.
2: Basically. OK. So that's, that's why he's got a, got a piece of it and a credit, because he came. I was working with him at the time up here in the house, uh-huh. um, just messing around. He's a drummer. Uh, and we were just messing around with some ideas. And he came over one day with a bunch of donuts. And, um, <laughs> and he, came, he came. I love in, it. Yeah. And he came <laughs> into the house. I said, How you doing, Tom? And he goes, Oh, you know, I'm just waiting for my real life to begin. Uh-huh. And I thought, There you go. And so then, as another interesting thing, where he, he was having coffee and eating a donut. And I just kind of sat there and that song just came. That was like a door that got opened. He opened this door. The title just went. Uh, he that opened the door, and I just wrote the song out. I just wrote that out, and then came up with the came up with the the chordal, the the, the chordal structure of it. So okay, so that was also put together in, in an hour or something. You know,
1: that's amazing. So it you did not have a structure for that song yet. It it was the title, as you said, nothing. There was nothing. Okay. It, was nothing.
2: It, it was nothing. He just came in, and I said, "How are you doing?" He said, "I'm waiting for my real life to begin." And I thought that's a great name for a song. And then I just uh, wrote it out, and uh, there, and it was. It was but th- but then it, then it came. It became kind of, okay, you know, looking back at it or reading the words back, I thought, well, okay, what is, you know, what is this? And um, and it struck me. Uh, it, I think it's about a lot of things. It's about addiction, and it's about it's about trying to um, follow the light, you know, instead of the darkness, and. But we all do this thing where we romanticize the past and dream about the future and think, "Oh, if only this happens, then I'd be happy." Or if only that had happened, then I, then I wouldn't be in the situation that I'm in now. Or we all look to the future or the past for some kind of salvation or some kind of some kind of. Uh, um, uh, we just, you know, for some, for for whether it's happiness or reason or or fulfillment, very rarely do we actually sit where we are and just really, um, it's a cliche, but very rarely do we just sit and be in the moment and understand that that's really all you have. Mm. So I was sitting around my house um, in the early '90s, because I'd been dropped by MCA Records, and I, so I had no—I was—I'd been with large corporate structures for for over ten years. I'd been with Columbia Records and with MCA Records, and I had you know big time management, and I had agents, and I just had—I had the whole kind of you know
1: machine. I you
2: know, <laughs> had that whole thing going, yeah. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. I didn't have any of it, and um, it wasn't—you know—it didn't—you know. It didn't, um, uh, you know it, it didn't destroy me or anything. I wasn't really upset about it uh, because I, you know, I wasn't poor, which was, I never was hungry. And it was not that I had to go out. I never had to go out and get, okay, I'm going to have to go out and maybe, maybe get a job as a waiter or something like that. It wasn't that kind of situation, but it was just like, okay, now how do I, how do I negotiate my way forward? And I was thinking about the past, you know, because men at work was such a high, um, it was such a high point, um, and you think to and you think to yourself, oh, you know, you've got to get back there. You want to get back there again mm. because that's really important, or you think it's really important, and, and and you're looking forward and you're thinking, oh, I want to get, you know, this is this is where I've got to go. So you set goals and all that kind of thing, you know, and 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 so I started to go out on the road and just play small small clubs and play to whoever would come along but i was think but i wasn't even really there i was still thinking oh this is an interim thing this is while i plot and scheme and try and figure out how to get back to the lofty peaks of superstardom you know where i belong you
1: know mm-hmm.
2: yeah got to get got to get back to mm-hmm. got to be number 1 again all those kinds of things
1: very human feeling yeah. human condition
2: and then i started to, and but it's very it's very stressful and so and then i started to think I started to look at the people who had come and see me, whether there was 40 of them or 50 of them or 60 of them, however many people there were. And they were just, they'd, you know, they'd gotten up off the sofa and they'd gotten into a car or they'd, what, they'd gotten to where I was playing somehow and they'd paid their money and they were sitting there and they're going, okay, give me what you got. And so I started to just bring it down to that, bring it down to, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to be here and I'm just going to entertain these people or I'm going to see what I can do with these people to, to, um, to have an experience <laughs> together. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I realized that actually, you know, the universe often has a way of telling you, this is actually what you're supposed to be doing. This is your job. This is your place in the world. Right, right. And that, that's, that's when it started to make sense to me, uh, um, being in the world um, and being connected and being okay with not drinking because I had a place and I felt connected. I remember sitting out in the backyard one day and just standing up and my feet were on the ground and when I stretched up, I could touch the sky. So I felt plugged in. I'm plugged in like it was an electric current, which is really what happens when you perform live. An electric, A current takes place where you put it out and it comes back. And if it comes back, it's like it joins up and then it's just a circular thing. And then you think, right, this is, you know, don't, don't fuck with this. You know, this is, this is working.
1: Yeah. You're in the zone.
2: And then you, and then you, and then you create something that's unrepeatable. You know, it's a unique experience. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, people film and stuff all the time now with their phones and they do all that stuff. And, uh, you know, there's nothing you can really do about it unless you, I'm not into saying, oh, okay, give me your phones, all that <laughs> bullshit, you know, but, but at the same time, People who do that they actually miss out on being pre and being where they are because they're concerned with oh I'll watch this later. How many times have
1: you actually? Yeah, no, that's watched? exactly right. Do
2: you do later, you know. So, um, so the live experience is something that um, it's not for everybody, you know, and it's a, it's not a particularly healthy way to live. But I think that that's tied up with that song where. Um, about waiting for my real life to begin, everybody does that. You know, everybody kind of thinks, okay, at some point I'm going to be happy or at some point I'm going to win. At some point I'm going to make the big score, you know? Well,
1: and, um, so one of the great saying. lyrics from it that really struck me was the line, "Forget what," and it seems to be exactly what you're talking about. Forget about the past, your mask is wearing thin and... Yeah. And so, about moving forward and all of that, being in the, being in the moment, did you, f- when you were able to do that, did you find your light? So this song, "Waiting for My Real Life to Begin." Okay, so you write this song, and that lyric, and you begin to be more connected, or at least try to be as connected as possible, more in the moment. How would you compare when you were men at work and you know these massive shows that you had um, as this pop? band that had these massive hits and just your own state of mind of happiness, however you define happiness versus, you know, as you got into your solo work and you became at peace with perhaps some smaller audiences, but nonetheless more just a different path at that point. How do you
2: compare it? The thing is, well, I don't compare it in a way. I just, that's the, that's the, I think that's one of the, um, dangerous is Mm. to compare the past with what you're doing because yeah because they're completely different and and so if you have that as a yardstick it's dangerous and it's kind of a recipe for some kind of insanity because you probably won't ever ever that won't ever happen again maybe you have success again maybe you have more success maybe you have a similar a similar thing might happen but the thing about the, the whole Men at Work experience and what it's like with a lot of people who, who gain success quite quickly is um, it's the first time. So the first time you ever, everything, something happens is always, it's, it's monumental because... It's the first time, you know, you've yeah. never experienced it before, you know. I always, I always talk about the fact that we, when we toured, uh, before we came to the States, we did a tour of Australia in 81. And it was before we became really successful. And it's like a lot of things which, which I, I think is true and that the happiest moments or the moments that you really remember, you, that you really relish are the times where you're almost ready, <laughs> where you're taking off. You know, the take if you're taken off in a plane, that's the exciting bit. Once you're up in the air, you go, okay, here we are. You've arrived. (laughs) You know, where and it's like you do with everything. It's like when you're almost ready is the time when is the most exciting. And um and so that's something that like now I kind of try and you know, I kind of trick myself in a way. Like if I'm playing somewhere that I've played before, um and there's now, for example, there might be a thousand people in a room. Mm-hmm. If I play if I play solo live, which is to me like a lot of people, mm-hmm. it, you know, it is a lot of people. Stuff, but it's a lot of people in the room that I have to go. Okay, I have to I have to go out there, and I have to make these people think at the end of two hours. Well, that was worth it. That was worth doing, you know, and and give them something that they didn't have before. Yeah. So I always kind of pretend or I trick myself into th- into going this is the first time I've ever done this. This is the first time I've ever played for these people and and so I, you know and and you and, and you still get this little voice on your shoulder before you go on going who the who the fuck you think you are? You know, <laughs> what you got you've got no act. What are you going to say to these people?
1: <laughs> well, and and now you <laughs> you, know. you have you have the anticipation, that kind of excitement of after being in lockdown for all this time, were you going to start hitting the road again in August, I believe?
2: Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's another you know that's, an, that's another thing that happened is that um, when I came off the road, when the pandemic hit, um, it was kind of shocking because I thought, oh, I, I don't have to do this tour, because I'd, I'd been touring for 30 years, really. Mm. And more often than not, I was on the road, and it was habit, and I didn't know whether I really loved it. Uh, but it was it was definitely a habit, and you'd have this, you'd put a you'd put a record together. It's more like a little, like a cottage industry, you know. Um, I was, I've been working with this record label for the last seventeen or eighteen years, and you know, you put a record together, maybe it takes a year or two, and then you you go on the road for the next couple of years, off and on, just working that record, and then you come back and you do the whole thing thing again, but. When the pandemic happened and they said, okay, you just have to go home, it was like this weight had been lifted off my shoulders and I came home and I thought, oh, I can just be home and not have to go on the road. And so what that meant was that time became this glorious thing where I'd get up and I'd go, oh, today I can just go down the studio and just mess around. I don't have to think, oh, I've got to get this together because I've got to leave again. So I almost felt guilty about the fact that it was um, liberating for me, and uh, and and the other side of the coin, of course, is that you know, in in this country alone, six hundred thousand people died. So it was this horrendous um, uh, tragedy, plague of horrendous proportions, and yet I was sitting at home because I could. I didn't. Have to go out you know and find some other kind of work and I, and I was okay financially and i could I could be at home and um work with ideas and come up with songs and um feel um, uh, pretty good about it,
1: yeah you know no by the way it's not a it's not an uncommon feeling for yeah. a number of people because obviously for those who ha- weren't directly touched, we were all touched but directly touched with the tragic, the most tragic outcomes yeah. from this terrible plague. There what there has been for many, uh, including myself in some ways, you, there is a certain taking off what you said, kind of expectations you have for yourself for each day and allowing you the kind of the freedom. So as an artist, as a creator, to focus on just a different part of your life rather than having to think about the way that you had thought about life day to day. So it was approaching something completely new, uh, because there was no choice, right? And so
2: exactly. Well, it gave me. It, it kind of gave me a sense. I mean, there was a time there where you just didn't really go anywhere. But when you would, when you'd kind of have, when you'd get masked up, you, you know, you, I, I'd think, okay, well, I can go to the. I can still go somewhere at some particular time of day. For example, I can go to the beach because mm-hmm. I know there's going to be hardly anybody there. You know, so I would so I would go to the beach, and and just. Walk, walk on the beach, and so it, g- it gave me this sense of wonder that I that I hadn't really felt for a, a long, long time. You know, just doing something incredibly simple like that uh, in the middle of this horror, um, you're just you're just kind of s- putting yourself in a situation which is just um, far removed from that. And it's a simplicity, if you like, but it it, it gave me a lot. It gave me a lot of. Um, uh, just simple, f- simple fulfillment, really, in doing in doing the simple things. And we, and you know, we inherited a dog, and so we had, we fell in <laughs> love with this dog, and so we were we were just smitten. And um, I thought to myself, well, this is my new purpose, just to make just to make this this guy feel happy.
1: Hey, that's a good purpose. I have yeah. three dogs myself, and yeah. they, they're probably going to jump job. on me. Exactly. It's no, it's wonderful. It's uh, for any of you out there who's never had a dog. It's a magical experience. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So um, I want to go back to one of the things you said, because when I was asking the questions, like how did you feel in this part of your life kind of compared to how, uh, th- I don't, I I feel completely the same way that you talk about it, which is success is, uh, well, I'll, I'll put it in my words. I won't try to put it in your words. Success is how do you define success? You know, society defines success in certain kinds of ways, but success, one of the ways I hear you describing it is being in the moment, being present at the moment in whatever circumstances there are. It's not not necessarily better or worse. It just is. And if you're able to be able to do that, then you are in the zone as it were and the enjoyment of whatever it is, whatever it can be, whether you're on stage, whether you're with your, your dog walking the beach is at maximum impact. <laughs> so yeah, there's that's right. I mean, I there's my little ph- philosophical bent.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you can consider yourself successful if you get up in the morning and
1: do whatever the fuck you want. Well, <laughs> there's a hell of a lot of freedom in that. And uh, no question. So, so after this, this year where there was no choice really um, and so f- you were fortunate to be in a position where you were able to withstand that um, but how do you how do you feel about hitting the road again and getting back into that sort of rhythm or do you see your rhythm changing now forever changed because of your experiences during this lockdown
2: well I, I'm starting to uh, I have to rehearse and practice and learn songs and get all that stuff together so I've started I've started to do that now uh, because I'm going on the road in a month and so uh, every day I try and you know do two or three hours of just kind of thinking about that and playing songs and not only playing songs but just kind of playing songs in different ways you know for example I I went through the set list I started on the set list the other day and I started to play songs songs that I've been playing for 40 years and I just started to play them in a different way and I thought oh you can play it that way and I because you do something for so long you just get set in your ways you think oh this that's how the song is played but so often it's not it doesn't have to be that way it can be in a different way so you just kind of um I've just been mulling over things or or messing around with with songs and so so hopefully, by the time by the time it comes around, when you're at, you have that three day rehearsal with the band, which is usually more than enough. Usually, after a day, we're good, which is great. It says a lot for the musicians that I that I work with. But but um, you know, once you once you go on the road, I think what will happen after two or three days, it'll be like you've never stopped.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: <laughs> and. Um, but I think the difference will be, hopefully, uh, audiences will be, very, will be up for it because they haven't been out of the house for a year. Or they
1: oh, they'll the be house. up for it.
2: And so I have, you know, I have, it'll be a different kind of set list because, you know, as we talked about briefly, I, I, um, in the, during the pandemic I, I recorded a lot of songs actually, maybe 20, over 20 songs, and, and then I had to pick 10 for a new album. So that comes out in the new year and it's called Now in the Evermore, that album. And it was originally going to come out this year, but I wasn't sure if I was going to go out on tour. So the record label said to me, well, you know, you're definitely going out on tour next March as solo. So why don't we wait until the new year to put the record out? And I said, because that'll be upon us before we know it. So I said, okay, that's fine. And then, so that was decided. And then I was sitting around the studio and, um, it was sadly the one of the the days uh, Jerry Marsden had just died from Jerry and the Pacemakers, mm-hmm. so I started to sing um, "Don't Let the Sun Catch You Crying," and I, it sounded you know I liked it. I thought oh, that's a nice major seventh chords and stuff. So, so I just turned the machines on and I recorded that song, and I sent it to my friend Chad Fisher, who's a great composer musician down in Santa Monica, and I said, "See what you can do with this. See if you can." You, orchestrate it and so he sent it back and it sounded beautiful and he said Mm. send me another because he was in between jobs and he said send me something else and so I just started to record some songs which had some kind of meaning to me growing up so I recorded Waterloo Sunset and I recorded Wichita Lineman and I recorded Can't Find My Way Home and Many Rivers to Cross, so I ended up doing a whole covers album. And so the label really liked it. They said, well, let's put that out in, <laughs> in, in, uh, in August as, a, as an interim record. So that's what we're doing.
1: So okay, so, so this August, and, and that's the album, the covers album is called I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself, correct? Correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so everybody out there, this August, and, well, that's August not far 6th, away. 6th, August 6th. Uh, August 6th, month and a half from now and then new music new and then new recordings compositions yeah. from you in the new year yeah yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. that album's called, that, that album's called Now and the Evermore
1: okay and, now uh, and the evermore great
2: so you know so consequently the set list is in, is cool because you you can do because uh, i have a band and so i can do old all the old uh, men at work songs and i can do songs off the solo albums and then plus some, some songs off the off the off this um uh covers record and then uh, songs off the new album so it'll be a very uh, varied set list
1: I think that the audiences are all ready to go I know that I've been buying tickets for the last couple of weeks for the first time in a year because I've been able to and so a lot of wallets are opening up right now and excited to go out to shows for sure yeah. um, let let me just uh before we wind things up and it's it really is it's fascinating to go through the journey of these songs and your life as an artist and a musician and where you're going from here too. uh, especially as the world is opening up again. But I have to ask, because I'm always curious, who are some, you mentioned some of your favorite artists as you grew up and the most influential, some of them that were influential to you from your earliest of days. Is there any new music or any new artists that emerging artists that you see young artists that you see, uh, who you are especially, uh, I guess, attracted to in terms of the kind of music that they're creating?
2: Um, well, there's a lot of. I think there's there's a lot of there's a lot of good music around um, if you if you're looking for it. You know, I mean, I I, um, I mean, I like a lot of I like. Um, I mean, my wife she listens to Post Malone all the time, and she loves Cardi B and all the all the women seem to be doing really well, you know. And I really like I really like all that all that stuff, you know. Um, Hip hop seems to be really um, pretty exciting in a lot of ways, and I think it's for a reason. And I can only ever really. Uh, Looking from the from the outside, from the outside in, you know, it's not something that I grew up with, and I, but I kind of marvel at it in, in a lot of ways. And this is—he's not a new artist, but somebody like Snoop, I think to myself, my God, that's—he's a—he's a phenomenon, really, in and just how he's gone about his life. My father loved him, you know. I used to go back <laughs> home before my father died because I think my father was an aspiring. I think he had songs in him, but he just never yeah. really. He never really got it together, but I remember going down there and uh, one day and he goes, hey, do you know that guy, Snoopy Dog? <laughs> he, he's got pigtails. He goes, yeah. he's good, that. he's really good, that guy. You know? <laughs> um, in the last few years, um, this has gone back, uh, t- I'm talking about people who I think will be remembered, you know, for a long, long time. You know, I think as a, Woman as a woman singer and artist, probably Sia is mm-hmm. extraordinary. Uh, I mean, I say that I'm biased in a way because I've known her all her life. Because I'm not her uncle, but uh, I've I knew her parents very well. Ah. I've known her since she was born, and uh, she actually came to stay with me when I lived in New York in 1987 when she was when she was 11. She, <laughs> she said, "Can I come and stay with you?" I go, oh, yeah, "Sure." So she came for a bit. Yeah, six weeks or something, you know. But anyway, she's a, she's an extraordinary talent, um, and I'm sure there's a lot of others
1: that um that are not springing to mind. No, that, well, it's no, that's that's wonderful. Um, and and just your advice as somebody who's been in the business for for several years, obviously. Um, what is your advice to young musicians, songwriters? Uh, about how they should approach, if they if they want to have a life uh, as where they can sustain themselves in whether it's re- recording or songwriting or touring, whatever, what is your advice to them in this world of music that it is today, which is significantly streaming first and the business has fundamentally changed from what it was 10 years ago, 20 years, 30 years ago. Do you have any words of wisdom? <laughs>
2: I don't well I've got words I don't know whether I don't know whether they're words of wisdom but <laughs> but um and I and I don't really claim to have ever been totally able to understand the business mm. the music business I mean I I still struggle a little bit with it I understand I have a good overview of things but I think that it's important to um uh, to take care of what is important and that is really um the creative aspect, you know, talking about somebody who's really um, young and exciting. I mean, you look at Billie Eilish, for example, and her mm. brother. That's mm-hmm. a great example of, of, of people who have taken care of what's really important. You know, what's really important is what you have to offer. Is what you can create and what you can offer the world. That is that is the thing that you have to polish, and take out and 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 uh, and um, keep pure and, and keep your eye on that and, and take care of that. And usually, what happens is that the other things follow, follow that. Uh, you know how you have that. I mean, you probably have that inner belief anyway. Otherwise, you wouldn't even embark on it in the first place. But um, I mean, you really just have to get on with it and. And I always think to myself, well, okay, the smart thing to do is, I don't know whether you really need, like I haven't had a manager for years because I'm nearly 68 years old. And I think to myself, why, you know, what business is it of me to have somebody looking after me? You know I mean? (laughs) That'll come soon enough, you know, when you've got somebody going, you know, (laughs) taking you into another room, you know. It's not something you want to bring on. You know, you want something (laughs) you want to avoid for as long as possible. But, um You know, having a really good um, legal representative as dry and and cold as it sounds is really important because if you have a really good lawyer, you don't really need... Um, anybody else? If you have somebody who can look at contracts, who can look, who can just look after that side of things, you know, you're less likely to sign things you shouldn't sign. You're mm-hmm. less likely to get into trouble, and then you can kind of take care of the of the creative aspect of which is which is really what you should be doing more than anything. But so you so you you really concentrate on that, but you realise that that there are that it is it is a nasty world out there, and there are there are predators who will, who will uh, fuck with you if they can. Mm-hmm. So it's good to be able to. It's good to protect yourself as much as possible.
1: Yeah, no, great words of wisdom. Uh, obviously, the business has transformed so much, and you know, another area is just that technology is, is continues to transform it so much. And so, whether you have a, a lawyer, which I think is great advice to have somebody who can help you a little bit that way, but musicians, depending on what you want to do. Um, and how far you want to take it, being entrepreneurial is is critical because there are so many different angles now, different, and angle sounds pejorative, but different ways to reach out and find your audience and build an audience. And so being aware uh, of those kinds of things. I,
2: I think that that's also part of the modern, uh, the modern creativity. Yeah. You know, which is not, which is different from when I was growing up too. You know, I mean, I think that, kids now who are sitting around making music they 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 factor that in okay i'm going to create this music what am i going to do with it they already had, have some kind of platform that they're going to that they're going to apply it to or they have some kind of scene that they're going to uh, they, they're going to uh, expose this and they have some kind of audience you know i think that that's part of nowadays it seems to be more of the creative process
1: yeah well this is great listen colin uh, it's wonderful to have you take us through and give us a tour of your musical career, your early days, and, and through those two wonderful songs of yours. Uh, and I urge everybody to, you'll, you may know Down Under, and I'm sure most of you know Down Under, and maybe maybe some of you um, are not aware of the second song we talked about, which is a great song, Waiting for My Real Life to Begin. And one thing I didn't ask you about that. You do have two different versions, at least that I could find, on yeah. your so- on your main solo albums. Which one do you believe is more faithful to the intent as you wrote the song?
2: Well, the first one I didn't like much when I recorded the first one on Topanga. It wasn't fully realized. It was, mm. I didn't really particularly like that version, so that's why I did it again uh, as an acoustic song, and I think that works much better that way. It also works really. It also works really. Really good now with a band, but it's it's gone through, it's gone through a, um, a an evolution, if you like. Yeah, and so it works both acoustically and and um, and with a band also. But the, the first version, sometimes you just don't get it right, you know. And then if, you know you think, oh well, I'll do it again because there's no reason why you can't uh, just have another crack at it, you know.
1: Yeah, it it is a very different recording for sure. Yeah. Uh, so. Colin, thank you. You've been extremely gracious. You have your upcoming covers album on August 6th. And then early next year, you have your new album. You're gonna be hitting the road in August, correct? You're gonna be going to various cities. So if you go to Colin's website, you'll be able to see the different tour dates, but great music. Um, Like I said, one of my favorites, uh, another great favorite song is on the uh, Garden State soundtrack. It's a beautiful song, but many, you have a rich catalog, Great to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having
2: me. Nice talking to you. Yeah.
1: And everybody out there, thanks for joining. Story Behind the Song. We'll continue to do this for consequence and hear more great journeys through these classic songs by talented, iconic artists. Thanks, Colin. Okay. See you later. See ya. Enjoy the road. All right.